Good morning again, and uh, as we come to our time of Scripture lesson, we're continuing in a series that Pastor Larry has been doing in 1 Samuel. We're here in 1 Samuel chapters 5 through 7. I think there are some notes being passed about uh, by Susie, so if you need them, just ask. Uh, for our reading today, I'm not actually going to read all three chapters of uh, our lesson. I'll be reading uh, chapter 5 through verses 6 through 10, um, and then we'll read portions of it as we go through in the message. So let's hear now. Uh, God's holy word from 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it in from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. That is why the priests of Dagon and all who entered the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the countryside of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return uh, return him a guilt offering, then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on all your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. 
it happened to us by coincidence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now, O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's, uh, it's been said that Albert Einstein had a saying that's this, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So you do the same thing each time, but hoping maybe this time it'll come out different. And apparently, I don't know if Einstein had a particular person in mind when he mentioned that saying, but I think if we're honest, I think all of humanity suffers from this kind of insanity, which is that we do the same thing over and over again, and yet we're hoping maybe this time it will come out different. One of my favorite comedians, Brian Regan, tells a humorous story of uh, being nervous about going to the doctor because the previous year he had high cholesterol and he's about to go to the doctor and he said, and I knew I was going to have to get the cholesterol report and hadn't done anything differently, so uh, what are the chances that suddenly it plummets for no reason? It's probably going to come out the same. Uh, Most of us desire to see some kind of change in our life. We might open it up and say most of us desire to see some kind of change in our city or our nation or our people, that transformation would come. But so often we get stuck doing the same thing over and over again, and it's the same result. Our passage today in 1 Samuel uh, is about what it takes to get a different result. What has to change? We have to see something change, and what do we have to do? Uh, We could say it this way, here's the flip side about doing the same thing. Uh, We often do the same thing, but when God wants to give victory and deliverance and transformation, he often does something similar to what he's done before. God repeats history. See, when humans repeat history, uh, we just don't learn from it, and the same thing comes about. But when God repeats history, it's salvation. He follows a similar pattern, and I want us to see that pattern at work in this passage. Uh, Last week, Pastor Larry had taught about how Israel had brought the Ark of the Covenant out. They were being oppressed by the Philistines. These are the nations around them. And uh, they bring out the Ark of the Covenant, hoping that this one change, this little technique, uh, would actually bring about a different result. They had been uh, slaughtered earlier by the Philistines, and they think, if we bring out the Ark of God, that's going to do it. And if you remember, it actually just made things worse, shockingly. Uh, There's an even greater defeat for Israel. The ark itself is captured by their enemies. It's sort of the unthinkable thing that could happen, the ark of God taken away. See, Israel is stuck in a kind of cycle of defeat. They're going to uh, continue to be under the thumb of these oppressors until something changes. And at the end of our passage today, we're actually going to have a kind of similar scene of the battle we heard last week. Remember the battle scene that Larry had talked about? Well, there's another battle scene at the end of the passage we'll get to today. Um, And I think what you need to be thinking as we get to the story is, is the same thing going to happen again? Israel's going to go out against the Philistines. Are they going to get defeated again? Because this is what's happened before. Is there going to be a repeat of history in a good way or in a bad way. Well, as we open our story, you can look there on the outline. Uh, The story opens by telling us what happens to the Ark of God. Ark is captured. 
And the Philistines, rather than destroying the ark, dismantling the ark, they do what most cultures have done throughout history, which is make a trophy of their victory. Uh, the, they know that the ark represents the God of Israel. You can hear it in their talk amongst one another later in this passage. And so capturing the ark is something that they're going to bring in, and they're going to display this trophy right before their God. Just as in the ancient world, any kind of battle was a battle of the gods. Is your God greater? Is our God greater? And the Philistines thought, ah, we defeated the God of Israel. He's now a servant to Dagon. So it says they set him up beside Dagon. It's kind of like uh, the Ark of Israel is going to be a little right-hand servant to do whatever Dagon wants. They're putting it in the palace of their temple. Uh, By the way, I think that's not too dissimilar to now. We often make trophies of the things that we do. Uh, Notice that the Philistines just kind of incorporate another religion, which is often how people do this as well. Um, If you're preaching the gospel, sometimes they'll say, oh, Jesus, I haven't tried Jesus. I'll I'll include him among the other things that I now believe. Uh, Why not give Jesus a chance? They'll bring the Ark of of God into their temple of Dagon, just add it to their collection for their own advancement. Well, before we get what happens to uh, the ark, I want us to notice something uh, that God had told Israel earlier in their history. Uh, Leviticus 26 is one of the many examples of the law of Moses where God says that there's going to be blessings for faithfulness and obedience to him, and there's going to be cursings. There's going to be trials and challenges that come if you are disobedient. Blessings for obedience curses for disobedience. But the ultimate curse, if you read that passage, Deuteronomy 28 is a similar passage, the sort of ultimate curse. God says, you know, enemies are going to come, it's going to be difficult, crops are not going to grow, but the kind of last ultimate thing is you're going to get taken away to another land. God had set aside this land for Israel, he had given it to Israel, and so the ultimate judgment is, in a sense, being taken away from that land that uh, God had promised to Israel. And we've already seen how the Lord has announced some judgments on Israel in this story of Samuel. Uh, There's judgments coming on Israel for their disobedience, for their unfaithfulness. So if we're reading carefully this whole story about a battle with the Philistines and Israel's unfaithfulness, we might actually have in the back of our mind, uh uh-oh, the Philistines are going to take Israel captive. They're going to take them into exile because that's what the Lord had said. If they are uh, disobedient, if they're unfaithful, they're going to be taken away. It actually happens to Israel later, if you remember, in the Old Testament with a different nation. But this doesn't happen in this passage. We might say it this way. Somebody does go into exile when this battle comes. Somebody does get carted off to a pagan land and temple, and that somebody is actually the Lord himself. It's kind of interesting. Israel is uh, promised that they would be the ones taken into exile, that there's a sense in this passage that the Lord himself is going to bear this curse. He's going to go into exile for the sake of the people. The people are not yet ready to go into exile. He's still merciful for them. So the Lord is, in a sense, bearing their shame. Think about this. This is his a precious ark. This is the sign of his presence, and it's being brought into a pagan temple. The Lord is substituting himself for the one who deserves to be a captive. Last week, Pastor Larry emphasized that 
the Lord doesn't have to go along with our ideas of uh, religious uh, ritual and technique. Uh, the Lord sets up rituals. He sets up things that are symbols for him, but he doesn't have to go along with them if Israel misuses them. So it's even more interesting that in this passage, the Lord goes with his ark. He, he goes along with his ark to this pagan land, to, to their temple, to be their captive. He's going to remain with his ark in exile. Now, what the Lord does in this exile for his people is to follow the pattern of Exodus. Exodus is the great story of God's people going brought down into captivity, brought into slavery, into bondage by Egypt. And the Lord says that he's going to fight the gods of Egypt and he's going to bring them out with a mighty hand and he's going to bring them on his behalf uh, to himself. So notice this with our passage. If you can look at the outline there, we see a kind of new Exodus scene, a kind of plague scene. The Lord's going to bring plagues. Um, there's going to be sort of a wilderness wandering. There's going to be a time of transition from the, time, from the place of exile, the place of captivity, to coming back to the promised land. But even there, there's some missteps, just as what happens to Israel in the wilderness wandering. But then there's a time of covenant renewal. Israel finally seems to learn what's going on here and returns to the Lord. And then there's new conquest of the land. So let's take a look at these at this pattern here. Uh, the Lord goes to the heart of the enemy and fights the enemy. They're brought again into the, te the temple of Dagon. They set him up next to Dagon, and it says they go away for the night. Remember, by the way, the plagues happen during the night. During the night is when particularly that last plague, the plague on the firstborn happens. So they come in the morning, uh-oh, and Dagon is fallen on his face before the Lord, prostrate before the Lord. And it's a great little irony here. It says they set him up and they put him in his place. It's kind of like, uh, well, uh, if your God's so great and you've got to pick him up and lift him up and you can kind of imagine them hauling the, the idol back into its place, putting Dagon back into his place, well, it's an irony here. Uh, just as the prophets often say, your gods have ears but can't hear. They have legs. They can't even stand up on themselves. You know, Dagon's fallen and can't get up like that old commercial. And they've got to have people come and help Dagon back. And then it happens again, and it's even worse. Dagon's head is severed, and his hands are cut off. Great image here of uh, that he is crushed in his head, is cut off uh, from his head, and then his hands, the hands are sort of the, your hands of power. Dagon is put in his place by the Lord. And what actually then seems to happen there in the Philistines is a kind of pass the ark around. It's kind of a hot potato ark. Uh, you pass the ark around and your city comes under plagues and bad things start to happen. And a number of times you can see in there, they call the lords of the Philistines and say, what should we do? And they say, well, give it to this city. You know, let's pass it along to them. And then that city comes under a plague. Notice some of the language here that's so similar. If you remember when we did the Exodus. Um, in the Exodus story, the Lord says that he's going to bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, and that's what's happening here, verses 1 through 5, um, that says the Lord has a heavy hand on the Philistines. That's the same phrase that's given of the Egyptians. The Lord had a mighty and outstretched hand against the Egyptians. They're even called plagues. The Lord strikes them with plagues around them, tumors, um, that, are, that are afflicting them. The people want the ark gone. Verse 11, another passage 
uh, that should remind us of the Exodus, where uh, the people of Egypt, after all of these plagues, they actually beg Pharaoh, please let this people go. Their God is doing it. Don't you see it? And even they send them out with gifts. Now, we kind of might wonder about these gifts, golden mice and golden tumors. Uh, I don't seem like the, the best gift. I've had uh, some kids around me ask, why on earth would, would you want to give a gift of a golden mouse or golden tumor? Well, somehow they're connecting it with the plagues that they suffered, and they see that there's a kind of guilt offering uh, that they need to offer back to the Lord. They realize they've done something wrong um, in what they have done in having the ark. But this is similar to the Exodus as well. Remember, the Egyptians give Israel all their gold and silver, and they say, go, please, leave. And even the diviners here, look at uh, chapter 6, verse 6. They know the story of Egypt. All the nations around seem to know what's happened to Israel. And they say, look, are we going to have to have hard hearts like Egyptians? Is it going to be as bad for us? In a sense, the Philistines almost learn their lesson a little bit quicker. It's like, let's, let's get rid of this thing. Let's see that the Lord is at work in this. Um, and just as the Lord did for uh, the Exodus, it says, why did he do all that he did in Egypt? He says, so that the people of Egypt and the Pharaoh might know that I am the Lord. The knowledge of the Lord is to spread through this event, and that's why the Lord is doing this. He's going into exile for his people. And in a sense, he's doing some evangelism. He's bringing about knowledge of him through all that he's doing here. But it's interesting, that last passage we read, um, there's sort of a, there's like, well, maybe, maybe all of this has happened by chance. Let's put it uh, to a test. So what they do is they put the ark on a cart. Uh, they have two mother cows that have had um, baby cows with them and say, separate the baby cows and send them out. And what would the normal intuition of a mother cow be? Well, it would be to turn around and to go straight back to their baby cows, back to their own land. They say, but if that cow keeps going straight, straight for Israel, we'll know that it wasn't by chance and it was the Lord who was at work in all of this. This is sort of the new exodus, these, these cows being set forth, uh, the ark going back to its place. And so in this next section, look at verses 10, chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, the Lord is basically guiding the steps of these cows to Israel's border. And there's some great funny kind of things. They're lowing as they go, so mooing as they go, and they come straight to the border of Israel. And there's a border town called Beth Shemesh. It's a Levite town. The Levites are the ones who have been kind of corrupted in Israel's history at this time. And it says that this is going on during the wheat harvest in the field of Joshua. What do you think Joshua is mentioned here? Again, it's kind of reminding us of kind of like that new conquest. Uh, we got a Joshua, a land of Joshua, and these cows are coming back to it. And the, the initial response is great. They, they see the ark coming. They lift up their eyes. They're joyful by what they see. They take the ark. Um, and in their gratefulness, they sort of have a, a you might say, a good intention, uh, but they sacrifice these cows before the Lord. Now, what's the problem with that? And you'd have to look back in Leviticus. We're not used to all of the different rules and laws of Leviticus, but these are Levites, and they should know the law of Moses. You never offer a female uh, a cow on this. The, the guilt offering is to be a male cow, to be offered before the Lord. This isn't on sort of the altar of the tabernacle, but even more so as we get to in a little bit, they're going to peer into the ark, it says. They're putting the ark here on this stone, uh, and it's going to be a stone of witness against them. Some of these things are actually reminders of us of what happens to Israel in the wilderness wandering. 
Remember that Israel sees the land, but they're afraid to go in. They rebel against the Lord. Other things happen to them as well. And God himself strikes down a portion of Israel's people. Well, something happens here similar again. And the way you can kind of think about it is this. Look at the statement that the people of Beth Shemesh say when they say, who can stand before this holy God? Let's get rid of this ark. Who do they sound like? Well, they sound like the Philistines. And the example here is that if you're going to act like Philistines, the Lord's going to treat you like Philistines. And so he strikes down a great number of these men of Beth Shemesh. The number is actually kind of variant in some texts. It's just 70 and some it's 50,000 and 70. So either way, people are struck down. Uh, the Lord it shows that there's still judgment on Israel. They haven't learned all of the lesson. They're not responding in the law of Moses um, and they don't actually seem that interested, um, ultimately, in having the ark back after this. But the ark then comes to a time. Uh, it's, it's given to another house, and it's going to stay there 20 years. And we're, we're ending this passage, look at verse, chapter 7, verse 2, with a slight bit of hope. The ark came. They were rejoicing about the ark, but they didn't respond very faithfully, so that there's judgment in this. But Israel laments after the Lord. Israel laments after the Lord. And that's a good sign, because what they're seeing is, is that it's a sense of lamenting not just of their sin, but after the Lord. That there's a, a lament of their own sin that they are desirous to overcome. They want change. They want transformation to come to the land in some kind of way. And then we have this, we have 20 years, so we have a long time that the ark is in this particular house. Uh, the house of Abinadab, uh, there's a, a Eleazar who's been uh, put in charge to, it's a priestly name to guard the ark in some sense. And they're, they're waiting. They're waiting on the Lord for something to change. The ark hasn't even gone back to the tabernacle yet. And they're lamenting after the Lord. And then we have this phrase. Look with me at verse 3 of chapter 7. This is sort of reminding us of what happens during those 20 years. Samuel said, so Samuel has been, we, we, we took a time when we were off Samuel. Samuel was being raised as a leader of the Lord. And now we have Samuel speaking to the house of Israel. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. It's a great statement in this. We are seeing the beginning of the restoration of God's people. But one thing we learned that we haven't learned yet in Samuel is what have the people of Israel been doing? They've been worshiping foreign gods. We actually haven't been told that yet. We know that they've been unfaithful to the Lord, but here we're told it's because they're hiding some Baals and Asherah among them. Again, it's such a temptation in the ancient world and our world is, yeah, I'll have Jesus in my corner, but you know, maybe I'll have a few other things as well. I'll have this or that just in case the Jesus thing, just in case the God of Israel thing doesn't work out. I'll keep these other idols as well. So the statement that ends here is that they served the Lord only, wholeheartedly, putting away their idols. So something is changing at work in Israel. 
And then we hear this next passage. It's a passage of covenant renewal. In a sense, that's already beginning with uh, this uh, this return to the Lord, Samuel's call for national repentance. They're putting away of their idols. But then it says this. Then Samuel says, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah. They drew water. But what do they do with this water? They poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. Seems like that pouring out of water is they're even fasting from water. They, dr- they bring up all this water, but they say, Lord, we're going to deny even this water to ourselves because we're calling out to you. And they say, we have sinned against the Lord. So it's a short statement, but such a profound one. We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistine went up against Israel. Uh Uh-oh. Because here they are worshiping the Lord. They're fasting. Is fasting a very good preparation for war? You know, not having any kind of food, uh, going without food and water for a time. And the Philistines, either they know this or it's simply by coincidence in some sense, they're coming during the worst possible moment for Israel as they're seeking to worship the Lord. And it says, when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines were drawing near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. This is a total turn of events of what we were expecting from the earlier battle. The earlier battle, we're expecting Israel to go out and win, and they lose. In this one, we're expecting Israel, uh uh-oh, they're fasting. They're not even prepared, it seems like, for war. This is not a gathering for war. This is a gathering for church, like if we're gathered here and we're attacked. They're not exactly prepared for this. But who's the hero? Who's the victor in this? The Lord thundered against the Philistines, and he routed them that day. As Samuel offers this whole burnt offering, it's a sort of symbol of their offering up their whole selves to the Lord. And so he offers up this offering. They know that they've sinned, and the Lord answers them in this. This is a new conquest because this is a conquest that should remind us about the conquest of Joshua. It wasn't by might. It wasn't by human skill that God had given them the land in the first place. So they trust and turn to the Lord. And look at verse 12 here. Samuel takes a stone. Remember the earlier stone that the people of Beth Shemesh, they set up? That's where they put the ark on, and that's where they offer up their wrong sacrifice. And they say, well, this is a stone of witness against us that the Lord was heavy against us. Well, now Samuel offers up a different stone, sets up a different stone, but listen to this name. He calls it Ebenezer, for till now the Lord has helped us. The Lord has helped us. Here's a question for you as we think about the previous battle in this one. Where's the ark? They don't bring out the ark this time. The ark is still, as far as we know, in the house of Abinadab. So it wasn't even the ark who does the work this time. Who was it who does the work? Instead of bringing out the ark, it says they turn to Samuel and they say, pray for us. Offer sacrifices for us. It's interesting. We've moved from a symbolic box of God's presence to now a mediator 
someone coming between Israel, a man, faithful man, who's praying and offering up a sacrifice, and the Lord gives the victory. And it continues on. The Philistines were subdued. They did not enter again that territory of Israel. The Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. In fact, it's even better. They gained some of the cities back that the Philistines had captured, uh, that they had taken from Israel, restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And then also we're told Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And here's a great phrase. He went on circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all of these places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. Samuel becomes a kind of circuit rider. There's revival going on in Israel, going from place to place, preaching about the word of the Lord. Remember how they brought the ark around? Well, the ark, what does the ark have inside of it? Well, it has the word of the Lord, has the Ten Commandments. So who's taking the place of the ark in this passage? It's Samuel. Samuel's the one who's here, who wasn't there, that makes the difference. Samuel's the one who's out preaching and bringing the, the people of the Lord to repentance. Samuel is a picture for us of a great mediator yet to come who's going to offer up himself, who's going to be the sacrifice, who's going to be the presence of the Lord, who's going to pray on our behalf, intercede for us, and give us the victory. Christ is the one who went into exile for us. It's the story of the Bible. It's the story of exile. If you remember, Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden, out to the east every time, exiled from the Lord's presence. But Christ bore our shame. In fact, the Gospels say outside of the city, he went out in shame, bearing our shame, going to the suffering that we deserved. He fought the enemy behind enemy lines, you might say. Where did the Lord fight Dagon and the battle of the Philistines. How did the Philistines get weakened? Well, because it was the Lord fighting their battles. They didn't even know it. The Lord was fighting there in the temple. Christ went out and he fought the enemy on his turf. You can think about what the Gospels say when they say this is the hour of darkness. And that Satan comes and the Lord fights him on this, giving of himself for our behalf, drawing all the fire on him. Christ toppled the gods all the forces of evil that had oppressed us, and he came out victorious. You can kind of think about the Philistines coming in. It says early in the morning to their temple. So while it's still dark, we might say, they're looking in their temple thinking, ah, we have the defeated God of Israel there. And uh-oh, the God of Israel is the one standing up, and their God is the one who is dead. They came to the tomb in the early morning thinking there was the defeated Christ, He'd be wrapped in his linens around him, and it says, but he's alive. He's victorious. He came through. He is our victory. So how do we walk in this victory now? How do we think about this as it relates to us? It points us to Christ, but here's the sense in this. What did Israel do? Well, part of it is they did nothing. They didn't know that the Lord was fighting their battles on their behalf, but they repented. They realized that they were in the wrong. They put away their gods. They put away their Baals and their Asherahs. They called on Samuel. Samuel is a type here. Pray for us. Intercede for us. They turn to the Lord in repentance. As you might think about our own country, our own people, our own land, you think things kind of look bad, don't they? It's a cycle of things getting worse and worse, maybe even our whole world. But you have to ask, what's going to make a difference? 
How's the Lord going to bring victory and bring transformation for us? Well, it's when we turn, it's when we repent, it's when we trust the Lord for the victor that he's given us. He says, put away, the Ark of the Covenant's great, but trust the Lord. Turn to him. Turn to his law. Turn to what he says in all of this. This is the same pattern for us now. This is the good side of the Lord repeating history because this is what the Lord does over and over and over again. He brings his people through an exodus, and he can do it for you in your life. He can do it for our church. He can do it for our land and our world as well. We follow in the footsteps of Christ, our trailblazer. We turn to him, and what makes the difference is getting that result at the end is the Lord fighting for us and trusting in his victory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray and ask him to do that for us now. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you to hear that you thundered against your enemies, that you went to battle bearing shame but fighting them on their behalf. So, Father, we ask that you would do this as now, as now for us as well. You know that we are in bondage to many sins. You know that we often hide our bales and our astras. And we ask that you would help us to turn from that, to bring them out, and to trust you, and that you might uh, turn our enemies and we might gain the victory, that you might give us freedom. We, we ask that uh, Christ who intercedes for us, that we might uh, have his mercy. So, Father, in all of these things, show us your victory as you fight for us. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.